Welcome to episode 21 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider, uh, back with another episode of the pod. Uh, Owen is starting us off today with some interesting news out of Sunbelt office markets, which are experiencing some some pretty severe trauma. Owen, tell us what's going on. We've talked a lot about on the podcast most recently about obviously the West Coast cities, Seattle, San Francisco, LA, etc. Um, but interesting news and data is coming out about the Sunbelt cities, which for some like Austin, Texas, were somewhat immune or perceived to be immune to the throes of you know, work from home and this in the hybrid um, model that some companies are implementing. And I'll give you an example of like where this is really hitting home is Atlanta. Atlanta is one of the largest office markets in the country, and it's the, one of the Sunbelt's biggest uh, boom towns where population and job growth has been on fire. Um, but you would never know that if you looked at the office market. And there's an article in the Wall Street Journal today um, and from the September 26th issue. And it talked about how vacancy rates are soaring, especially in the subleased market in Atlanta. Um, and as you can imagine, you know, you start to see office vacants, uh, office rents and values starting to fall. And we're even seeing developers in Atlanta now delaying new projects while office defaults are mounting. Um, and so it's just an example of that, even though, you know, we have, it's become somewhat normal on the West Coast to see sublease supply surge, um, it's now hitting uh, cities like Atlanta, which previously were, were doing really well. And it's a really, I think, an ominous warning to those cities that think that they, you know, are more apt to weather the storm of the office market turmoil that we're, we're in in some cases. Um, even when we see some economic, you know, growth with uh, with new hires. Um, and it was, someone made an interesting point in the article that, you know, you used to be able to look at um, job numbers that came out and see a correlation between those job numbers and the demand for office space. You know, every new job that was added in the office sector perceivably would create demand. Well, now developers can no longer rely on that data because there's not that direct correlation anymore, which I thought was really interesting. And specifically, um, in Atlanta, there's um, an owner of office buildings called Banyan Street Capital. They gave up six office towers in, in addition to an underground mall inside Atlanta's downtown Peachtree Center that went into foreclosure auction last year. And then recently, Starwood Capital defaulted on an office building mortgage that it was unable to refinance given interest rates. Um, and so now their office vacancy has climbed to 14.7%. And again, that's not availability, that's just vacancy in Atlanta. And that's well below you know, the 20% that you know we've seen in San Francisco and places like Seattle or even higher. Um, but that could push Atlanta above 16%, which is their record level of vacancy, which was during the 2008 financial crisis. And right now you see sublease space standing at about 9.1 million square feet in Atlanta. So I just, a lot of doom and gloom and I'm not suggesting that like there's, there's no need for office space, but um, you know, there, even during this, like what might be um, a slow return to the office, tenants need a place to call home. And there's going to be some landlords, the best landlords with the best product that will be there to accommodate what might be a downsized, downsized more efficient tenant. Um, but I just think the days of like this, um, this rather reluctance to capitulate to what the market is going through is picking up steam, uh, rather losing steam. Um, and I think landlords are going to start to realize like, okay, we're in, I hate to say it, it's a cliche saying, but a new normal um, and driven mostly by sublease supply, which we've seen on the West Coast. 
it, I, I find it interesting because, you know, my underlying theory to this was that similar to how a metro market works during a run-up where the most pioneering neighborhoods or areas that are, that are, uh, that see the appreciation and rent or see the, the absorption of space, the last are usually the ones to fall the furthest and first. And I also looked that way, looked that way across the country where these more pioneering markets, like if you go to Atlanta, it's a massive metropolitan area and they just kept building and building. It's not really constrained by land or by, by uh, natural boundaries. So the land just keeps going. Or if you go to, you know, uh, Austin, Texas, or even um, Boise, Idaho, like these markets that kept um, popping up that were these feeder valves to the expensive East Coast, West Coast, or Dallas, or these expensive markets. Um, and you'd think that those ones would fall the furthest and fall fall first. And you really haven't seen that so much. Uh, at least I haven't seen it uh, in my uh, in my analysis. So it's it's interesting to see how land is starting. And maybe it's just slower than we thought would happen because of the lease terms and because of just the drag in the marketplaces. But you'd like to think that some of these markets are going to be the ones that had hit the hardest as companies retreat back to their headquarters, retreat back to where the core employees are that are going to be in the office. Um, you know, is that is that a, a something we're going to see in the future? You know, I want to point out something that I think is important. You mentioned lease expiration dates, right? As long as the lease is running for a couple more years, maybe the landlord doesn't have a problem yet. Um, the loan maturity dates um, that are coming, some are starting to come. So the, the stories we're hearing now, I believe, are anecdotal. And what I say is that we are in a pre-capitulation phase. Like the, the market broadly has not had to accept the new reality. But as time passes and as the leases expire and as these loan maturities come due, um, we will reach a point of capitulation and these stories will be more broad. I totally agree that this is hitting some of these Sunbelt markets later, right? Like San Francisco, Seattle, LA, some of the hardest hit, earliest hit markets, and we're starting to see a move through the Sunbelt. But when we're talking about buildings that are actually going through default, right? Like defaulting on their on their lenders, interest rates do not discriminate based off of geography, right? So whether you're in Atlanta or New York, if interest rates go up by several percentage points, and you're trying to refinance a loan for an office building, then you're screwed either way. So when I hear, you know, hey, uh, vacancy has gone up to 16%, uh, the highest that it's ever been, even worse than 2008, I think, is that really the cause of these buildings being in default or or not? Um, and, and obviously, that's not good. And if vacancy were way lower, there would be less defaults, no question about that. But I think that these defaults, similar to most defaults that we're seeing nationally, are much more driven in general by interest rates than they are driven by vacancy. Because you can sustain a 15% vacant office building if you're getting you know, reasonable rents. And as we've talked about, you know, John, we're, we're not yet on the other end of that capitulation stage. I think we're right at the start of that, where landlords are realizing that these rents aren't sustainable and they're starting to recast rents. We've talked about this on the pod before, but the second part of the story in Atlanta and any other you know city where we're seeing widespread defaults on office buildings is that those buildings are eventually going to be sold by the lender or someone at a massive discount. Somebody's going to buy those buildings and reset market pricing and try and win every single deal that happens in that you know downtown area or that 
you know, CBD or metro area, wherever it might be. And when that happens, that building may actually perform really well. You know, it's similar to, you know, a bond is yielding, you know, X dollars a year in, you know, payments. And all of a sudden that bond is worth 50% less or something. Well, guess what? Those payments you're getting from those bonds relative to the price you paid for it is really attractive returns. So somebody's going to come in and buy these buildings at a big discount and make a bunch of money and win all the tenants by discounting rents. And if you're an existing landlord in Atlanta with a very high basis, it's really hard to capitulate and realize, wow, we've just lost a ton of money. Let's lock in these rents that guarantee we've lost money. But if you're a new landlord in that market that has a basis that's you know double digit percent lower than everyone else, you don't care about the market. You just think, how can I get occupancy? And that's what these landlords are going to do. It's really just a matter of whether it takes six months or 18 months or 36 months to have this cycle unfold and have keys in the hands of new owners that are ready to lease these buildings at more appropriate rental rates. Tucker, to your point, you're spot on. It's, it's not driven by necessarily um, you know, these other factors other than just lack of income on these buildings. And so we see it here in Seattle. There's a there's an owner I'm negotiating with that's probably going to default given lack of NOI. Now they could refinance, but nobody wants to catch a falling knife at near double digit interest rates. And in order to refinance, they would have to rebalance the loan because they're faced with 50% vacancy in their building. And so that's a great example of what you're talking about. That building probably will foreclose, um, and somebody's going to pick it up and have the bandwidth and the runway to invest back into the property with some deferred maintenance and some enhancements. And then be able to do deals at market pricing. So I think long term, this is fantastic for the market in terms of those who are looking for space, not so good for owners. And on the macro level, yes, it's going to have its effects on the economy. But if you're a tenant listening to this podcast, um, you know, there's already opportunities out there to seize um, the, the benefits of this of this turmoil for those that are looking ahead. None of us are rooting for the demise of the office market or for any individual owner to default or anything like that. But the harsh reality is that defaults on office buildings are very good for office tenants in the medium to long term. If you're a office tenant in a building that's going through default, that can be really tough. It can be challenging to even extend your lease for one year. But at large, it's good for the market because that is how you see prices come down. And you see these intransigent owners say, okay, there's a new owner that doesn't care about the price, doesn't care about the basis. We need a lower rents to be competitive or they're going to win every other deal. Uh, and you you typically don't really see widespread rent reductions until this starts occurring. So the fact that this is happening uh, should should really be cheered by tenants, unless of course it's your building that's going through default. Uh, in which case, there's some some big challenges that come with that. So again, in the category of anecdote anecdotal, uh, let me tell the story of this building uh, that was sold. The story came out today in CoStar. An Oregon investor. Um, Bought an office tower in Chicago's Loop for $45 million. Uh, it's a 29-story tower. And um, check this out. So they paid $45 million. It's a price far below the $122 million that Florida-based Accesso Partners paid. Um, the buyer was Menashe Partners out of Oregon. So that's a 63% discount off that high. And oh, by the way, they, they say the price was a little more than half the amount of an approximate $87.7 million loan uh, for Morgan Stanley and a refinance in November of 2019, just pre-pandemic. Uh, so they don't talk about default. They don't talk about foreclosure, but clearly um, the lenders participating in that sale um, 
Anyway, here, here's a quote by this uh, CEO, second generation CEO of this company. Um, is the office dead? The answer is no. Uh, is Chicago dead? The answer is no. It's a contrarian play. When everybody goes left, we like to go right. We're ready for another, another deal in Chicago. Well, yeah, at a 63% discount to your competitors. So that's, you know, an N of one, uh, but really wild numbers. There's a lot of people that are talking about how the vast majority of office buildings in any given city uh, are the equity has been completely wiped out. And of course, there's you know no way to know. It's not like somebody's going and underwriting every single building in the market. What's it worth? What's the debt? When's the loan expire and all that? But when you hear stories like this, you realize just how dire it is because not only was that a full equity wipeout, that also was a partial lender wipeout too uh, in, in, a meaning, in a meaningful way based on you know, what that last refinance, uh, and, and loan value was. So yeah, John, um, you, you may have seen this news too, but, uh, about five days ago now, WP carry, which is one of the largest single tenant net lease owners, uh, in the world, a giant publicly traded REIT announced a complete exit from the office sector. So they own like 50, 60 office properties worth 9.2 million square feet worth of space. And they came out and their CEO, on an earnings call said, we are aiming to sell every single one of these office buildings by the end of the year. <laughs> and I can't emphasize how unusual that is for a giant, you know, multi, multi-billion dollar, you know, tens of billions of dollars valued REIT to say, we are selling this 9.2 million square foot portion of our portfolio by the end of the year. Um, and you might think like, okay, well, you know, maybe that's just one transaction. Somebody's buying the whole portfolio a lot of the uh, verbiage that they've used have said, you know, hey, we have many of these properties already in advanced negotiations. Typically, when somebody's saying something like that, it means that it's not a portfolio buyer. So you, you start thinking about this of, okay, you know, five years ago, WP Carry, about 30% of their portfolio was office space. Today, or like last week at the time of this announcement, it's more like 16%. Uh, and there are other asset types that they're in are primarily industrial, you know, manufacturing, some retail, things like that. Um, so so pretty pretty wild to be trying to execute on an exit that large by the end of the year. And it's just striking because um, these buildings, I would be surprised if they're selling at that, you know, meaningful of a discount uh, compared to the transaction you're talking about, John. But there will be buyers on the other side of this transaction. And it really raises the question, who's right, who's wrong? We talked about this on uh, our last episode of the podcast. What was funny, though, about the timing of this is literally uh, maybe two, three days before a global investment management firm focusing in ETFs and mutual funds called Van Eyck out of New York had just announced that it is launching a or it, it launched rather an ETF to give investors uh, the ability to get exposure to the performance of office REITs. So the ETF just purely tracks the performance of a handful of different office REITs. And this launches like two, three days before WP Carey, one of the largest owners in this space, uh, announces a complete 100% exit in one of the most rapid timelines we'd ever seen from the office market. So, um, you know, two really smart groups on opposite sides of the bet. Who's right? Who's wrong? Time will tell, but very interesting. It's very interesting. The... The point that I want to make is Owen had talked earlier about Starwood Capital um, defaulting on a, a property in Atlanta, and that was in the news. Well, 
just a few weeks ago, I saw Barry Sternlich give an interview, and they just launched a distressed fund to buy distressed office buildings. So on one hand, Starwood, Barry Sternlich's the CEO of Starwood, the founder. On one hand, they're defaulting on an office building they don't think is performing. On the other hand, they're, they're raising a fund to go buy distressed office buildings. So I think at the end of the day, you have to realize that, that these owners with the pool of capital that they have, they're making decisions that aren't a one-to-one ratio to what your what the realities in the marketplace are for tenants, right? It's it's you know this is Wall Street playing Wall Street, and right now with all this uncertainty and all this turmoil in the marketplace, there's some really smart people, financial engineering, probably some really smart moves. And and at the end of the day, I have clients that are that are like, why haven't we seen rates? And like in Boston, we haven't seen rates drop an office product the way that you think you would, right? There's there's hundreds and hundreds of options for uh, a client right now looking for 25,000 feet. You could run a survey. There's probably 150 options in, a, in Boston. Two years ago, there was five, 10, you know? It's it's really frustrating, and, and the pricing is really high. And I'll tell you this, what I keep telling them, and it's it's I believe it's true, is that <clears> – <throat> One, people aren't going to chase pricing down until there's actually demand and there's not a lot of demand in the market. So why start putting pricing out there that's significantly lower knowing that you're going to get undercut anyway, right? So there's the mentality of why chase something that's not there. And the second thing is a lot of this space that's on the marketplace is listed by brokers that represent a lot of these landlords. And the pressure on the brokers to try to maintain some level of market discipline, even with clients on the subleasing side, is really strong. So we hear all these stories about default. I don't think it's as widespread as we'd expected at this time. I think many people, I was not one of them, uh, I thought it was more of this kind of extended pretend mentality for a number of years. But a lot of people had predicted this kind of carnage into the office markets of mass widespread defaults. We haven't seen it. Uh, Secondly, um, I think tenants need to really get out and and test the market rather than than rely on the opinions of brokers or stats, because I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of downward pressure that's hiding in the weeds right now. We spend a lot of time talking about what's going on in capital markets, who's buying, who's selling, who's defaulting on their loans, things like that. And you know, as we've shared since the beginning, our focus on the podcast is always how do we help corporate tenants you know, large, medium, large size companies, leasing space, occupying space with their real estate portfolios. And you may wonder, how is this relevant to, you know, the company that's got a million square foot portfolio of office leases around the country? And the reason it's so relevant is that these companies are betting huge, huge dollars and allocating capital in a certain way to try and maximize return for their investors. And there's not that many people that are betting real money on the, on the, you know, which direction the office market goes within the commercial real estate ecosystem, right? Brokers aren't betting real money, property managers, you know, all, all these different people, they are not making real bets. And when you have people, you know, making a commitment to sell 9.2 million square feet of office space, because they think it is going to be a drag on their overall performance of their portfolio, that implies two things. One, it implies that as WP Carry, the you know, and group that's selling 9.2 million square feet of office space by the end of the year, as we were talking about earlier, that they believe that when those office leases expire and they have to 
renew their existing tenant or find a replacement tenant, that that's going to be challenging to do. Maybe the existing occupant leaves and then it's challenging to find a replacement tenant and there's downtime and interruption in the cash flow. And then second, when that lease comes up for renewal, that rents are not going to be what the rents are currently. So these people are betting enormous sums of money, basically saying that they don't buy that they're going to be able to renew their tenants at reasonable rates and that's going to create downward pressure. The reason for selling office space is not interest rate driven per se, because interest rates are affecting all different product types of real estate similarly. So this is a bet on the fundamentals of office space and the non-performance in the long run. And what that says to you if you're a large tenant is okay, or a tenant of any kind is okay, it's only a matter of time until the sentiment from the smart money in real estate that are betting real dollars that aren't just talking heads and pontificating without any stats or any information, these are heavily researched decisions, they are betting that the market continues to go down and they don't want to own these assets. And that means that pricing is going to come down. It's just a matter of when. Although I would challenge you a bit, I do think interest rates are a key driver um, because it's these loans coming due, uh, needing refinancing at the higher interest rate that is the death knell for many of these owners. I believe if they could extend at their current interest rates, they would stay and pray, right? Hang out as long as they can. Um, it's the it's the loan maturity that's forcing um, the reset, I believe. Yeah, I, I would agree with that for a lot of owners. But in this particular case with how WP carries financed and the duration on yeah, these leases and their availability of capital, I, I don't think that's the decision uh, on their end at all. I think it's purely a, we do not want to own office buildings. Let's get out. And if we can get out, I mean, they've made the decision to sell regardless of what the price is. Hopefully they'll be able to exit for their sake at a reasonable price. But, um, you know, that same argument of, hey, interest rates have gone up and all that, that would be an argument to sell basically every single real estate product type or holding that you have no matter what. Interest rates have gone up. We need to sell. Um, you know, obviously that contributes and creates situations where people are more likely to sell than not because interest rates have gone up. But the fact that interest rates have gone up, you don't see WP Carey selling its whole industrial portfolio. This is a asset specific or product type specific exit saying we do not want to own office buildings. And, you know, in the long run, that means that office rents or rather they're betting that there's going to be higher availability and lower rents and they don't want to own product type with those long term fundamentals. I agree. I wanted to add that point. I think in the way that they're doing it in bulk like this and doing it now uh, really speaks volumes to this idea that they believe it'll be worse later. Like, let's get out now. I think that's what it says. Yet at the same time, you have Van Eyck making the opposite bet. And the other thing that's interesting is that if you look at WP's stock price since this announcement, it's down 15%. And at the same time, Boston Properties, which is also, a you know, is they own way more office space as a percentage of their portfolio than WP Carey does, but their stock's down 12%. So my initial reaction when I saw WP Carey's stock price was, wow, the market's reacting pretty negatively to this. Maybe the market wants them to own these office buildings. But then you look at the other performance of REITs and uh, you know, makes you think that it's probably more driven by uh, you know, the Fed news from uh, last week. And keep in mind, guys, uh, John, you bring up interest rates. I, don't, I think what people are realizing, too, if people read the Fed's notes from their last meeting, um, obviously they're not decreasing rates anytime soon. And what I thought was interesting was they, they expect rates to sit at about 5.6% by the end of this year. And then the same projection was stated for June of next year. 
with maybe next the end of 24 going down to 5.1% from 5.6. So the point is, is that the Fed's not signaling much easing, um, at least between now and June of 24, and really not much between now and the end of next year. So I don't think there's much optimism for these owners or even lenders for that matter, that there's going to be any sort of major correction that's going to make refinancing easy in the next 12 to 18 months. Um, so I think that's part of the driver too. There's just not a, a rosy outlook of, of these uh, landlords for being able to refinance or manage its debt. And I will tell you across product types, talk to your point that, that interest rates are, I guess, or that the WP carry story is less sensitive to interest rates. I agree on it on that particular uh, point, but if you look, there, there's a lot of news around multifamily facing a cliff of refinancing issues. If you know a transition we'll make later it, around industrial <clears throat> construction starts have fallen off a cliff, and a big part of that is interest rates. You, you know, there's there's a real headwinds in all asset classes because of the drastic increase in in interest rates and. Not just the fact that the building's worth less and debt costs more, it ties up a lot of the banks on the sidelines because they don't have the balance sheet to weather the, the reduction in the value of their existing portfolio of loans. So that ties up all their capital so they can't lend. So you've got less lenders and higher borrowing costs are just really, really strong headwinds against owners. And I think, I think that it's going to take years to kind of work through the system, but this is something we're going to be facing for a long time. One thing that I find really funny is that there are landlords that I've interacted with recently on transactions that literally price their buildings based off of what they need rent-wise to make their building worth a certain amount. They don't care about market fundamentals at all. They're just going, gosh, you know, my exit cap rate went from 5% to 7%. That means rents need to go up by X percent. This is what we're now charging. And the rents are completely disconnected from reality. And it makes you think, you know, during these up markets, I think there were these same owners that were saying, wow, if I can get X dollars per square foot in rent, then I'm going to get an 18% return for my investors. And maybe they could have gotten a 25 or 30% return, but they're making decisions based off of implied returns on a spreadsheet instead of the reality of the market. And that seems to be going on very much so right now. You know, it's kind of the pray and hope that interest rates come down or pray that you get somebody to pay a stupid price for commodity office space when they could locate across the street at a normal price. Yeah, I'd challenge you a little bit on that because my experience is when the market is in their favor, they're looking at the market very succinctly saying rents are here, even if their 25% return is below it. Rents are here. You need to pay this elevated rent. As soon as the market turns, it's more about, okay, I need to preserve my equity. I need this rent, regardless of where the market is. So they'll take it on the upside, but they're not giving it to you on the downside. And, and um, you know, the tenant is now the most important person in the room again. And it's, and it's great to be in, in a position representing tenants because that whole analysis they did is, is like, that's fairy tale land. Like that is the Wizard of Oz. And it doesn't matter that math they're playing. It just doesn't matter anymore. What matters is tenants have options. Rents are coming down and tenants will only pay what market is and and likely below where, where the stated market is. Um, so let them play that game. But unless you're a captive tenant in a building you can't move out of, 
it doesn't really matter anymore. And it's almost funny that they're trying to play that game because it's 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 laughable to think that a tenant will ever will will, will ever will, will ever negotiate based upon those those factors. Let's sum it up like this, Brian, because I totally agree. We are at every market in the country, some more than others, are awash with supply right now. And uh, while I maintain a guarded optimism about the market's eventual return to office space, it has shown scant signs of recovery so far. And I don't care what market you're in in the nation. That's just a fact across every single office market from the Atlantic seaboard to the Pacific. And the prevalence of subleases in these markets continue to overshadow the market, leaving every landlord grappling to compete for office tenants in light of how aggressive these subleases can be. And so all the stuff we're talking about, landlords trying to just cover their basis, sublease supply, uh, you know, the whole work from home and lack of office demand, it's everywhere. Okay, and so you, you bring up a good point and the point we've made over and over again the tenant is the most important person in the room these days and don't let anybody suggest otherwise. Yeah. It, oh, and, 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 you know, the thing that, and I, we haven't really hit on this, but I was, it's, it was apparent to me in a conversation I just had with a client because they're tracking their return to office. And this is a major employer with over a hundred thousand employees across the country. And they were tracking, they're tracking their return to the office. But what, what the marketplace doesn't realize in the news agencies and, you know, castle systems is in, in during their reset, when they moved everyone home, they went through a process, and about a third of their workforce they designated 100% permanent. It was their call centers. They pulled them out of inventory. So you're talking about a third of the people are not even in that return to office. So if they say their occupancy is at 50%, right? It's 50% of a much smaller number, right? And I'm assuming a lot of the big employers went through a very, and I don't know this for sure, but a lot of the big employers went through a, a rationalization as well. Like we don't need this this level of employee, this type of employee in the office anymore. We're going to put, we're going to eliminate our call centers. We're going to li- eliminate our customer service centers, right? Those types of, of, of product type, like they're just out of inventory and they're always going to work from home from ever. And we're never going to ask those people to come home, come back to the office, right? So I think, I think that whole rationalization of the number of people that ultimately will create the demand that's going to recreate these office markets or reprop these office markets, it's a much smaller pool. It's not the same. It's not the same number of people we were working on three, four years ago. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about that and what the actual data looks like, right? If return to office is X, but you know you're excluding thirty percent of the you know workforce that was designated permanently remote at companies like the you know, client you're talking about. Yeah, the the numbers could be a lot, lot worse than people realize. But um, let's let's conclude talking about office. And Brian, I know you wanted to talk about the emerging news on construction starts for the last uh, couple of quarters. Yeah, before we get there, I want to get into the really interesting and dynamic topic of restoration first, because it's really important to our listeners. Now, I, I want to um, make an observation. So I'm currently in two restoration negotiations on behalf of two clients of mine, and, and they have similar themes that I wanted to point out because I think it's important to our listeners. And it is... These are buildings that were not your traditional office building, but the client built an office space in them, or it was delivered as office space um, to them. 
and one of them has a mezzanine that office space within a kind of a single story building that they created two stories and the leases are are favorable to our positions in the sense that they're pretty gray in terms of restoration obligations but the landlord's initial position on both of them is you need to rip out everything all the office space all the hard walls You've got to take this back to a clean, you know, like the European model. You've got to take this back to corn shell. And the reason they're doing it is it's pretty clear. They want to take the building and they want to use it for a different use. So um, it's and we're getting into the negotiation to say that, you know, we're going to we're obligated to do what the lease says. And this is our interpretation of that. But I think our listeners should really start to one. We should start to really pay attention because if we're renewing office space in a building that's not a traditional office building that is adding a ton of value to the to that building and you have the maximum amount of leverage to get very specific on your restoration clause when you're doing that renewal and one of the things you want to exclude and make it very clear is you don't have to rip down hardwell offices if you're paying an office rent while you're in the building you shouldn't be required to move the off, remove the office space at the end so they can use it for flex space or industrial space later. And I've seen it now twice, and I'm in negotiations, uh, and landlords are taking a very strong position to the contract. So restoration may be boring, but super important. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where the market's coming down, landlords are really hurting, and they're clawing for anything that they can get. And a lot of times when you're dealing with restoration, uh, unsophisticated companies might not have advisors involved when they're approaching the end of a lease term, uh, or they might have advisors involved that are helping them relocate or something like that. And these landlords will probably be successful at getting tenants to uh, agree to significantly more restoration than they're probably uh, like legally required to do per the lease, because tenants just don't know. They think, oh, this is normal, whatever. Yeah, we'll restore it. Oh my gosh, it's going to cost a few hundred thousand dollars or a million bucks or whatever. And a million bucks, obviously it's real money, but it might not be a significant amount of money in the context of a lease where you're paying you know, $5 million a month in rent or something. They might go, shoot, okay. Our move costs are going to be you know, way more than that to relocate. I guess that's just part of it. So really important to be consulting with uh, your advisors, reviewing your lease, making sure that you're not being overcharged by these landlords that are in a world of hurt trying to get any last penny that they can because it's a matter of survival for them. That's a great point. Yeah. So, Tucker, I will jump into uh, the other the other news that it came out recently um, that the industrial construction start. So this is new industrial construction has fallen to 10 year lows uh, on average across the country. So it's you know, it's a major drop off from where we were. And obviously, over the last five years, we've seen a massive run up in construction based upon the increase in rents and the lack of supply across the country. But you know, it's, it's fallen off a cliff. And what that means for our clients is that um, if, if history repeats itself, which it typically does, is that when construction starts uh, drop off, there's going to be down the road in two or three years from now, there's going to be a, a big spike in rents because as demand uh, comes back or demand continues, supply being limited is going to create more, you know, a, a disconnect between supply and demand and increase in costs. So uh, I thought it was interesting to bring up the topic. It's hard to know whether this is 
uh, self-regulated or more just a matter of interest rates. I do think over a long period of times that developers are getting smarter and are less willing to blindly, blindly flood the market with supply. I mean, you just think about how much smarter the markets are and investors are today compared to 20 years ago, uh, you know, where people just keep building and building and building and they're delivering into no demand and all of a sudden vacancy swells. I mean, of course, vacancy and availability industrial buildings is going up. Uh, but how how long is that going to happen if we have no new supply delivering into the market, right? Vacancy has only been going up in industrial because there's been significant new deliveries into you know majority of these markets. So I'm very curious what will happen. Uh, probably six months ago on the pod when we were talking about industrial real estate, we did a whole episode on it. We were making predictions around what we thought would happen. And the, the, the feedback was, at, at the time, Prologis had announced that it was slowing down on new construction starts uh, and was going to be more prudent moving forward given the interest rate environment and concerns around uh, sustained consumer demand, things like that, that have a very large impact on uh, the demand for industrial warehouse space in the U.S. And we predicted that there would be a slowdown in construction and that construction is uh, lack of construction, lack of supply is going to contribute to meaningful increases in rents and more um, buoyancy in rents where they are today. Uh, and I think that's happening. We'll see whether industrial rents go down meaningfully. I had uh, predicted that they probably would not given the slowdown in construction. Uh, so we're probably, gosh, maybe nine months, 12 months away from seeing, because that's when these buildings that people have slowed down and building over uh, over the last six months will would, would have delivered if they hadn't been uh, slowed down. Hey, let me like, let me take a shot at a quick hit here on, an, on a different topic. Um, it's something we've talked about in the past here on the pod, and that is the uh, increasing insurance exposure and cost, especially in, in key markets. Um, so the Wall Street Journal picked up on it in an article this morning um, talking about that's the next thing that's going to, you know, next shoe to drop for the office and suffering commercial real estate markets where they see increasing operating expenses, where insurance premiums are really going to start to spike. And in particular, here's an article from CoStar um, today. And uh, California to change property insurance pricing. Did you know that California does not allow insurance companies to price in um, considering future climate change effects in their policy pricing? And as a result, these insurance companies and the reinsurers are all fleeing California. So California is changing the rules, changing the laws. Now insurance companies can incorporate uh, future climate change effects in their policy pricing. So here we go. Increasing expense at an unfortunate time. Well, definitely better to have higher insurance premiums than just not be able to get insurance at all. So I'm going to put this down as a, a big net win for California uh, doing something that's commercially reasonable not uh, fair or right for insurance carriers to never be able to make money in California. So at least there's, uh, you know, uh, an incentive to, to be here now. Hopefully the, you know, people in Los Angeles that literally cannot get their homes insured because of fire risk at any price, maybe this will allow them to, um, you know, have somebody that will write them a premium at a, at a huge number and, you know, have that peace of mind. I guess we'll see. Yeah, I think this is important for our clients to, to understand. The I think in the journal they talked about a, an owner that had um, a policy that had, had been around six hundred thousand dollars a year, right? And then to renew that policy, the cost of it was one point eight million dollars. So, and 
you know, in our world, a lot of these costs get passed through. So la- owners are are less concerned. I think that was a multifamily residential project where the owner has to has to eat the cost, right? It's not in it's not a pass through with multifamily, um, but the the costs in our world are passed through to the tenants. So these increase in insurance costs are not necessarily a problem for the owners. They want to be competitive for vacant space and. It gets you know it gets difficult to be competitive if your your triple nets are much higher than your your competition. So they're sensitive to it, but not in the same way that someone like in a multifamily development would be. But our clients should be aware that two things: one, costs are going up, and two, owners will try because of the sensitivity to try to keep their rents, their gross rents, in line with other buildings. They'll start to play the you know we're going to take a um, we're going to increase our deductible from, say, it's you know fifty thousand per occurrence. We're going to put it up to a million dollars per occurrence. So it creates all this additional exposure for your for your tenants. And uh, if they're not aware of that, and the lease doesn't restrict their ability to play that kind of arbitrage game, then we you know there's sensitivities there because you may not be covered to the same degree going forward that you were in the past, or you think you are. Uh, so it's just something to pay attention to. It's really rare just for our audience for the insurance that the landlord's required to maintain to be included in a lease. I mean, it's extraordinarily rare where there's, you know, the landlord's deductible needs to be less than X. Like you you will find that in really large, very sophisticated leases, but you will not find that in your, you know, average 10,000 square foot multi-tenant office building or your 50,000 foot industrial tenant. So it's not there. And, you know, something that's interesting to think about is say that these insurance premiums, you know, triple or quadruple or even 10x over the next 10, 15, 20 years as some of these climate challenges in certain parts of the country uh, are exacerbated, right? Like, I can't imagine what the cost to get insurance in certain parts of Hawaii is right now just following that crazy fire from last month. So what, what happens? Like, do landlords just say we can't pay for this, we're going to self-insure. Uh, do they, you know, just pass on all the cost and hamstring their ability to lease other space in the building because everyone's going to go into that eyes wide open knowing that it's really expensive? I'm curious how this plays out in actuality. Like, what what do landlords actually do here to try and optimize the management of their buildings? What if uh, a group of property owners got together uh, informed a risk pool. So imagine commercial landlords in Maui, for that matter, uh, form a risk pool with other property owners, so to get together, um, who pool their resources uh, to shelf, self-insure collectively versus just the landlord uh, self-insuring themselves. Um, so, you know, they contribute to a fund, the funds used to cover losses for the group, um, and it could be a solution for cases where they are unable to maintain ins- or achieve insurance, or it's just prohibitively ex- expensive. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But um, you know, thankfully, we don't have that issue here in Seattle yet. But I know it's prevalent elsewhere. Well, that concludes episode twenty-one of the Corporate Real Estate Insider. All kinds of interesting topics today. Thanks so much for listening, and we will be back in another two weeks with episode twenty-two. Thanks.